Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I always thought that sobriety would be challenging for me, but I did not expect my sobriety to be challenging for other people. Hello, welcome to Figuring Out 30. I tell you what, every time I say hello, I feel like I sound like Frank Walker from National Tiles, if anyone remembers those ads. But yes, welcome to the podcast that explores the chaos, confusion, and clarity of life in our 30s. I'm Bridget Huswait. And hey, recently, I did a call out to my followers on the topics that they would like to hear me cover for the podcast. And one that popped up a lot more than what I anticipated was alcohol. Things like how we can better navigate booze in our 30s. I even had messages from people who were still feeling like peer pressured to drink at this age. And it got me thinking about my own situation because now that I don't have to work weeknights, I can do things like eat dinner at, you know, a normal time and and go to events, which is really fun. And I guess with this, I've noticed a greater exposure to alcohol and I've never been a massive drinker. Like I certainly did my time when everyone was turning 21 and stuff. But everyone turned 30 really in lockdown and 2020, those first two lockdowns in Melbourne, I definitely drank a lot more than what I usually would. But like overall, I wouldn't say I'm a huge drinker because I feel I've always felt like I could spend my money on better things like clothes and food. (laughs) But yeah, recently I have kind of just... Yeah, noticed myself drinking a bit more. And still, again, it's not like I'm binge drinking weekly or anything like that. It's more so just more casual drinks, maybe more frequently. Um, And it's enough for me to feel like mm, it doesn't really feel nice, I suppose. And I think what probably made me really reassess things was the fact that I could always do you know, little breaks. I could always have dry spells quite easily. But now when I think of taking a month off drinking, I find myself having to check my calendar and I've found myself going, oh, nah, I can't really do it if I've got this coming up. And yeah, that's starting to concern me just a little bit. Anyway, I quickly realized through my conversations with people who sent through this suggestion and even with my friends that I'm certainly not alone in feeling this way. Like my friend Dee agreed when we were voice memoing about this the other week and here's what she had to say. I feel like I haven't had a break, a proper break from alcohol in like years even and the summer and fucking comedy fest and dating everything is revolved around alcohol and i feel so shit ellie and i have been talking a lot about it because ellie's done like two months now and she has just been like the social pressure is 
fucked. Like, she was just, like, people keep getting so uncomfortable and weird around her when she, like, goes out and even goes, like, dancing and stuff and people are just like, what the fuck, you're not drinking? Or sometimes she'll just pretend she is and they'll ask her, like, why she's not having more to drink. And Yeah, it's just so fucked. So right now what I'm doing is taking a three-week break from alcohol, which I know may sound like it's nothing, but it is something to me at this point in time. And for this episode, I'm catching up with someone who became a best-selling author through her year of sobriety. So you're about to meet Jill Stark. She used to describe herself as the binge-drinking health reporter, and you're going to hear about how her line of work felt so conflicting with her weekends, but also what it's like to give up booze and how she navigated navigated the response because to her surprise, there were some pretty big reactions. It's a super insightful look into drinking culture in Australia and also how women are sold booze, which I thought was so interesting and frustrating. It's never something that I've thought about before until I read Jill's book and I was like, holy shit, that's fucked. (laughs) Anyway, the conversation isn't here to make anyone feel bad about drinking. I am a drinker, but I think Jill raises some really valid points about the kinds of chats we do need to be having in terms of how we do consume alcohol and how it is such a big part of our lives. So let's get into it. Thank you for joining me to chat about this. This is a topic that I feel like in our 20s, we are kind of really on the wave of just like 21st and just living your best life out Mm. and stuff but I had a friend hit me up and she was like you need to do an episode on drinking in our (laughs) 30s because she went to a hen's party and the peer pressure Mm. the peer pressure that she felt she was really taken aback from it Mm. and she was like I thought we had outgrown at that but when you stop to think about all of the other events that do tend to happen in your 30s and stuff alcohol is probably I'm more exposed to it than what I actually thought I would be at this point in life yeah was that the same for you in your 30s yeah I mean the I wrote high sobriety as a result of about to turn 35 and thinking about wow I've been drinking like this since I was I mean I had my first drink when I was 13 growing up in Scotland and you know I had what was it was it whiskey no it wasn't actually (laughs) my mum is a huge malt whiskey fan much to her disappointment neither my brother or I ever liked the taste of whiskey but um my my best friend and I my parents had gone out my best friend and I taken a can of really like really shit lager like tenants lager which is like Carlton draft you know like it's just the bog standard Scottish lager and we'd we were we put it on top of the mantelpiece and we were looking at it like it was some sort of holy grail and we we heard because back then there was no alcopops there was there was no there's no internet so yeah. we heard that if you drank the beer through a straw and put sugar at the bottom of it it would taste better i haven't heard that one <laughs> i thought you were going to go with the um squeezing the air out of the straw or something and no. then it makes it necking it a bit right easier. no we were just trying to make it taste less disgusting and so we were we were sort of like looking at this kind of lag or like it was like it was some sort of holy sacrifice we were just staring at it because i think neither of us really wanted to drink it but we wanted to get drunk and then my older brother who's three years older than me he came home with his best friend so they would have been 16 and he just looked at us and he said what are you doing and I said I sort of tried to fudge it and he said were you going to get drunk and I said yeah and he said it was kind of the equivalent of you know Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee when he's like that's not a knife this is a knife (laughs) my brother's just like that's not a drink and he opened my parents drinks cabinet and proceeded to pour us what he called FYUs which was fuck you ups like which was basically just everything that was in the drinks cabinet whiskey gin vodka all in one glass 
and just shotting it. Oh, and my gosh. Yeah, that was a pretty – that was my introduction to drinking. Wow. So it was – there was no sort of steady, slow, gradual <laughs> easing into drinking. Like everyone I knew was drinking from a very early age and it was every weekend – and, you know, the older I got, it was, as you say, go out to events and it was midweek as well and after work drinks and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, I woke up on the 2011 New Year's Day with the worst hangover I've ever had and <laughs> thought it was going to kill me. Mm. And I just thought, God, how long can you keep doing that? And I think you're right. Like in your 20s, you don't have to think about it because you're like, this is just what everyone does. Yeah. You know? And then you get into your 30s and people are getting married and having kids and buying houses and getting into really serious career positions and and you you kind of think you have a moment of reflection of like am I going to just keep doing this forever like when does this stop and and as I explore in the book in the book like I at that point I thought I would have a family I thought that's what I wanted and actually it turned out that's that's not what I wanted but at the time I thought I might have kids and I thought oh well I'll stop when I become pregnant yeah and I interviewed a lot of mothers for the book who said they thought that too but then as it turns out, motherhood's really hard. It's really stressful. And, and when they have that night out, they want to make the most yeah, of it. Yeah, and, and a lot of mothers tell me that um, drinking takes them back to who they used to be before yeah. they had kids. So their identity is not just wrapped up in being a mother. They are actually a fully formed person that has like, wants and needs and used to have fun and, and do wild things. So it's almost like... That. Takes them back to that past version it, yeah, of themselves, yeah. so and they may still grieve in a way. Exactly, and, and there is a there is definitely a grieving process, I think, for when you do give up drinking. But I, I, th- I think I thought that there was some sort of magical line in the sand that would appear at a certain age in my life, and then I would just no longer want to get drunk and no longer want to drink alcohol, and that just never happened. Mm. Um, so I had to consciously make the decision to take a break. And reflect on on the the role of alcohol in my life. So, what was the the kind of line, I suppose, with deciding to go full sober as opposed to just moderation? Was that something? Were you just like, I just can't like moderate well, it? Interestingly, at the time, I was a health reporter for the Age, and yeah. I was literally, you know, at, during a week, I was writing stories about Australia's binge drinking problem. And at the weekends, I was writing myself off. Like that was that was what I was doing. I, and and I, there was a complete disconnect between my own behaviour and what I was writing about. But I, you know, I was winning awards for writing about this stuff, and yet I couldn't really put the two things together because I didn't see my drinking as. You know, I don't identify as an alcoholic. There was nothing. There was no rock bottom moment that I thought, oh, this has to change. It was just a series of incremental bad decisions <laughs> that I didn't really look at in their entirety um and so as part of my job as a health reporter I I think I think our intuition that inner knowing is always there Mm. and I think the stories that I gravitated towards were not by accident you know in in my job as a health reporter I gravitated towards stories about mental health and alcohol use and that kind of things and I think I in some ways I was trying to work out my own shit through the pages of a national newspaper and so I find myself writing about Uh, an organization called Hello Sunday Morning, which at the time was just a young 22-year-old guy from the Sunshine Coast who, like me, had got tired of the partying lifestyle and wanted to know what it would be like to stop drinking. And he created this website and it was just people could blog about their experiences. And there was only about 50 people on it at the time. It's now grown to a global organization. Like it's, it's extraordinary how much that has changed. Um, and Chris Rain, who started Hello Sunday Morning, said to me that the research shows that the 
the, the sort of minimum time you really need to fundamentally change a habit is about three months. And particularly when it comes to alcohol, if you think about Feb Fast, Dry July, Dry January, people, and I was one of those people, you tend to white knuckle it. You just go, or, or you might not even go out very much and you might just stay at home and you don't really test yourself. Um, whereas three months, you're going to have a birthday. You're going to potentially have a wedding. You might have to go on a date. There's going to be stressful situations that you have to face without reaching for a glass of wine. And so that's why he recommended three months. Um, and he had said to me at the time, well, why don't you give it a try when I interviewed him? And I, I think I was hung over that day from being out at, at the Walkleys or something the night before. And I was just, it was a preposterous proposition <laughs> and I said well don't be ridiculous I'm a journalist and he'd said you know I hear this all the time people say I can't I can't of course I can't not drink I'm a nurse I'm a teacher I'm in advertising I'm a lawyer like, yeah. I'm a tradie like whatever it is we kind of we we sort of form our identity around as a way to sort of excuse our drinking um and that was very much me I'm a journalist I grew up in Scotland very big drinking culture I live in Australia also a very big drinking culture what, what am I going to do? You know, like this is just the culture that I inhabit. Um, and then when I woke up on that New Year's Day, I'd got home at 6am, the birds were chirping and um, I just, I had a panic attack in the car driving to Macca's. Oh no, <laughs> we're getting a hash brown? Yeah, I don't know what I was doing, but <laughs> it wasn't good. And I hadn't had panic attacks for quite a long uh, number of years. And I just thought, oh. I just had Chris's voice in my head saying like, you know, why don't you give it a try? And, and I think the decision that I had to stop drinking completely was for, for that three month period is because I knew that I'd done FebFast before and I'd done those month long challenges. And often you just end up drinking more at the end of it because you almost like think you deserve it. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I eventually made the decision to stop is because the thought of not drinking for three months, which let's face it is only 90 days in the scheme of your life, it's not that that long a period of time, mm. it scared the shit out of me. And I knew then that I had to give it a shot because why, why does it scare me so much to not go without this substance for 90 days? Like there's something not quite in balance there if that is a really daunting prospect. Mm. So the intent was originally three months and then it stretched to a year. Yeah. So what was the decision behind, you know, and, oh, I never it? intended to stop for an entire year. Yeah. <laughs> if somebody had said that to me, I would have just thought that was insane. Yeah. I mean, even three months seemed ridiculous. But um, to my great surprise, at the end of the three months, I went through my 35th birthday, which was at the end of March, and I had that completely sober And because I had thought oh, maybe I could just stop a bit like a week early so I could have a drink. And I was like, no, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And I had such a good time. My parent, uh, my brother and sister-in-law came over from Singapore and my nieces and it was just, it was lovely. Um, and I was really present for it. You know, that's the thing about when you take alcohol out of the equation, you're much more in the moment. And I just thought... Um, I'm really enjoying this. I felt healthy. I felt I had this clarity. I felt calm. And um, at the end of the three-month period, I decided to, to keep going for another three months. I just thought that will I'll see how I go come July. Um, and at the time, I was working for the Sunday Age, and uh, my editor said, why don't you write a piece about this? And that was back in the days when broadsheet papers were huge, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there was I wrote this 2,500-word confessional with a picture of me dancing my arse off at a primal scream gig which looks like I'm off my face but I'm actually completely sober right. I was actually caught by one of the age photographers who happened to be there it's a great picture of my hair is all flying around I'm all sweaty and I'm just completely in the full moment. of joy and and 
not queuing at the bar and missing the band like I used to. You yeah. know, I was just there. I forget one of my favorite bands. And um, so I wrote this piece and, and I, I started it, as I said before, you know, I was the binge drinking health reporter during the week. I wrote about Australia's um, alcohol problem and at the weekends I wrote myself off. And I basically confessed that I was a bit of a hypocrite. And it was it was really daunting. And my editor said as I left the newsroom that Saturday night and the pages were laid out and, and I remember her saying, enjoy your last night of anonymity. And I just thought, Jesus, what have I done here? Um, she about to go viral. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, 2011 going viral was quite a different thing, but it did actually as much as it could back totally. then. Out of all the things that I'd written in, I mean, I'd been a journal since the late 90s at that point, nothing had had such an impact. And um, I think the Hello Sunday Morning, because I mentioned them in in the piece, their servers melted down, like so many people were signing up. Like, so I feel like our journeys are being very intertwined. Like Mm. they're they're, like that piece really sort of turbo boosted their, their, um, their reach. And so many people said, oh, that was like reading my own story. You know, and I think I think that's what I've always tried to talk about when I talk about sobriety. I will never be one of these people who's like, oh, you, you should all stop drinking and when you do, everything's amazing because that's just not reality. And um, I'm not evangelical about it. I just talk about my own experience, which I think is quite a universal experience. Like this sort of, particularly for young women, that you start off as teenagers drinking and then you just get caught up in this culture and before you know it, you're staring down the barrel of 40 and you're thinking, I've just been doing this for two or three decades. Mm. So, yeah, I I think at the end of that three-month period, I did another three months. Actually, when the piece was published, um, I mentioned in the piece that I was working on a novel, which wasn't very good, but (laughs) um, two publishers came forward and wanted to meet me and so I met with one of them and they basically offered me a book deal on the spot and said if you were to write a book about if you were to do this for 12 months there would be a book in it and I was like you know it's just been a dream come true a dream for me my whole life to write a book that's all I'd ever wanted to do since I was a wee girl growing up in Scotland and um I remember walking out of this publisher publishing house in Carlton on a beautiful sort of um autumn day and just thinking this is it I've made it. And I just wanted to go to the pub to get drunk and celebrate. Uh, and I couldn't because I was contractually obliged not to for oh, the next nine shit. months. So, <laughs> so that's what happened. And it wasn't really my intention to ever stop drinking, which is why, you know, it's been it's been so interesting. Um, the reaction. I I never expected the reaction I got when that book came out came out in 2013 because mm-hmm. I had never said I was gonna stop drinking forever. But um I just like unwittingly became the poster girl for sobriety, which was not a, a title that I had asked for. Yeah. But I guess if you're going to put yourself in the spotlight like that, it's to be expected. But I, I hadn't seen it coming. And so many people were really disappointed in me. Some of them were furious that I actually went back to drinking why? after about 14 months. Yeah. So why do you think people are so invested in other people's stories like that because it is I like would it be fair to say going sober is hard but the re- the reaction externally could almost be harder and just dealing with that that is absolutely 100% it like I always thought that sobriety would be challenging for me but I did not expect it to be cha- my sobriety to be challenging for other people and often I find even to this day and it's a it's a completely different landscape being sober now than it was back then but I often find the hardest thing about sobriety is not 
sobriety itself, it's it's other people's reactions to it and how you deal with that. Um, because we do still live in a pretty booze-soaked culture. But, yeah, it's it, – I I think that people were – had fully invested in my story and and so many people had tied their relationship with alcohol to mine and I wasn't expecting that and I didn't really know what to do with that pressure because like that's a lot to take on right and I, and I think people are looking for role models they're looking what they want to know is that you can be a binge drinker like I was bog standard social binge drinker and it becomes you know problematic and you can then take a break and go back to moderate or mindful drinking or you can just quit altogether. And I I thought I had nailed that. I had I, I went back and I for probably a couple of years I was a moderate mindful drinker and I, you know, alcohol was something I enjoyed on occasions. It wasn't something I needed, mm. but over the years just old habits began to creep back in and that's, you know, why. And I, also life events, like in a, min- in a minute, very keen to kind of touch on covid (laughs) like and how the fuck that went for you but yeah like when you so I I guess for the timeline so ended up being a year of going sober then you decided to drink again in spoiler alert yeah (laughs) (laughs) what is um what was the moment of the first drink how intentional like were you planning when it would be what it would be so how do you approach it I actually won't – for anyone who, who does want to read High Sobriety or the re-release Higher Sobriety, I won't talk about what happened at the end of that year because it is a spoiler alert. It was a really – it was a, a devastating way to end the year, which people who read the book will will, will learn. Mm. Um, but there was an event towards the end of the year that suddenly made when I'm going to drink again seem like an irrelevant, completely insignificant decision Mm -hmm. like it just wasn't a big deal and so I just I didn't feel like drinking but others would make I would imagine others would make that more of it probably more of a big deal than you would want it to be right (laughs) and I think that people were quite patient with me and sort of realized I had a lot going on so I didn't feel too much pressure on that front but I did decide I think it was February so it was nearly 14 months I think that I I'd since I'd last had a drink and it was with the same group of friends that I had been with on the New Year's Eve party. Oh, that, who had the last drink with <laughs> yeah, you? Okay. Who, like, those parties always end, start at midday. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of relaxed barbecue before you know it. It's 5 a.m. and, like, you're singing the pogues. It's and still going. Like, yeah. Uh, drinking, like, Baileys out of a shot glass or whatever. Like, it's just tequila out of pint glasses and stuff. But anyway, um, it was a, a wedding from in that group. And I... We'd, we had formed a band <laughs> with some of the friends and I was singing in the band. We did about six songs, I think, as a set for the wedding. And so I, I wanted to be present for that. Yes. I didn't want to be drunk. So um, I, I think, I can't remember if I had a, a drink before or after I went on stage, but went through the whole wedding and then I was like, yeah, you know, what I'd learned from the year of drinking was that I want to be more intentional with with how I drink. And having a glass of champagne at a wedding seems like, you know, an appropriate time to to have a drink and to toast the bride and groom. And um, so I did. I, I ordered a glass of champagne from the bar and everyone was like, somebody was filming me. And then this one guy kept like giving me the champagne, taking it away like it, like, it, like I was a child, like, you know. Oh, that's, and that's annoying. That was annoying, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've waited 14 months. Just give me the like, fucking yeah, drink. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then everyone was looking at me and it felt like they were, I was like a, 
dog walking on its hind legs. Yeah, you know? it's like, like you're a show. Just, and I, I had a drink and it was really disappointing. I, I, and then I had a beer. I had like a pale ale that I really enjoyed. I used to really enjoy drinking and it just tasted not good. And I don't know, I felt really flat. Like yeah. um, I don't know what I was expecting, but it just doesn't, it didn't give me what I, what I thought I might get out of it. And so it wasn't till like the week after that I had a glass of wine with a friend at dinner and that felt, that felt quite quite nice but yeah the it's a really difficult thing to do I think to drink moderately and that's not something that we hear a lot because we live in a culture that likes to pretend that alcohol is not a very addictive drug because it's legal right Mm. so but honestly let's be real about this if it was a drug that was brought onto the market right now it would never be legalized like it's it is so dangerous in many ways like it's it's in terms of drink driving in terms of how it's uh, linked to domestic violence, not to say that that's an excuse, but it's often one of the factors. Um, it's Isn't the cancer link as well that the, you know in the book? So no one, no one, knows, no one that. knows that. Know that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a group one carcinogen. It's in the same category as asbestos and tobacco. But how sobering is that when you say it's, it? Like if that was out on yeah. billboards and stuff? One in five cases of breast cancer are linked to alcohol. Wow. One in five. And I have breast cancer on both sides of my family. So it felt like what I was doing was just a very high stakes game of Russian roulette. Yeah. Like, you know, I stopped smoking years ago. I stopped smoking when I was like 30, I think, which is still quite late. I've been smoking since I was a teenager. And I stopped smoking when I was waking up in the middle of the night with coughing fits that were making my abs hurt. You mm. know, it's sort of like, as I say in the book, sometimes like the future slaps you in the face so hard it leaves an imprint on your cheek and you have to take action. But with alcohol, um, it was like I was sort of like a boiling frog just I didn't even know I was cooked you know I was just burning alive in in increments um and I think that's something that I do talk about a lot is people always want to know well what was your rock bottom moment like what was the reason that you quit the second time it's now been nearly four years since I had a drink and like oh like because people want to place their drinking on a continuum and and match it with yours Mm. so well, I'm not as bad as her. Exactly. Then that's okay. Yeah. And honestly, I did lose some friends the first time I stopped drinking because when I was taken out of the group as a big drinker, someone else had to step up into my place. Uh-huh. And it was like a mirror, you know, and people, the people who were most offensive about my decision not to drink, which really shouldn't have had anything to do with them, were those who I think had an uncomfortable relationship with alcohol. That they weren't willing they to didn't kind of. Look at. Yeah. And I was told that by one girl in particular said, oh, well, you're judging us. And I said, I don't understand how you could think that I'm judging you and she said well you used to drink the same as we all did and now you're saying it's bad so you're you're saying that we're bad and I say I said no I'm not saying that I'm saying that the way that I was drinking was starting to have consequences for me for my mental health for all sorts of reasons um and I just wanted to try a different way if you are drinking in the same way and not having those consequences or then that's up to you like it's none of my business um but yeah like there's this sort of conventional wisdom that in order to quit drinking or take a break that you must have hit rock bottom or Mm. you must identify as an alcoholic and I just think that is that really boxes people into very constrained categories that end up with them not actually making a change because they feel they don't want to they don't want the stigma of of saying oh I've got a problem but for me like there's a Millie Gooch who 
runs an Instagram account called the Sober Girl Society and she wrote a book and she talks about how if your house was on fire, you wouldn't wait till it burned to the ground <laughs> to call for help. Mm. And I think that's what was happening for me. There was all these spot fires going off, you know, I'm like falling out of an Uber or, you know, taking home some guy that I don't remember. And, like, you know, there's anything wrong with that, but there were situations that I was in that I was probably not safe and not remembering things, blacking out. And it's only, I think, by pure luck that I didn't have more, like, serious or permanent consequences. Like, I've got a permanent scar on my knee from falling out of an Uber with some Daily Mail reporter I picked up. Like, you'd have to be pretty <laughs> drunk to pick up somebody who works for the Daily Mail. <laughs> I oh, mean, my God. The only thing I do remember from that night is screaming as I was trying to pick him up, the Daily Mail is a cancer. And by that, I stand by that much. But, you know, just don't remember any of that. But I do have a permanent reminder of it on my knee and like that's at the time it was like oh just funny battle tales to tell my friends but at what point does it stop becoming funny mm. at what point do you do something and uh, there there was there's at least one friendship that will never be repaired due to something that I did when I was drunk which I I can't really talk about because it's not my story to tell um it's quite personal but yeah there's a friendship that will just never survive mm. and I don't know well actually I do know I'm, I'm almost certain that there would have been more friendships and relationships blown up had I continued the way I was going wow it's pretty full-on <laughs> yeah it's pretty full-on but you know what the Bridget I think I mean not, I'm not to say that like everyone drinks this way but I think a lot of people do and yeah. I think a lot of because I know because they message me on Instagram and they you know, I used to do a, a thing called no booze day Tuesday where I would just answer a bunch of questions on a Tuesday night on Instagram and it's just the same stories all the time. People saying, like, I really want to stop drinking, but I don't know how and I mm. don't know what life would look like without it. And I did this thing, I slept with my friend's boyfriend or <laughs> I injured myself or, like, I'm spending all this money and there's just all of these red flags. But, but drinking is so normalised that it's very difficult to, like, opt out of that culture without feeling like you're saying oh I can't moderate or I can't I've got a problem and everyone else can can handle this substance but I can't but the reality is most people aren't handling the substance very well moderation is really hard to do because it's a highly addictive substance and I think there's a lot of shame that comes from people who try to quit drinking or um, cut back on their alcohol intake and find that it's really difficult and they they feel like it's some sort of moral weakness mm. in them and I always say the shame should lie with the alcohol industry who have propagated the lie that alcohol is a benign substance like tea or butter when really it's, it's highly addictive and um, pushed to us by the industry as the necessary ingredient for belonging, to fit in, particularly for young people, that this the is how... Milestones. Yeah, to, to commemorate, commiserate, celebrate, everything in yeah. between. So if you feel like you can't moderate in that culture I don't think that's a failing on your part I think that's just part of living in a culture that is soaked with booze. yeah it's a, a huge failure of the society that we find ourselves in for sure and I mean when we look back to when this was all happening 10 odd years ago and I guess the the evolution of how we perceive sobriety now do you think we still have, because I mean, I, we look out and there's heaps of non-alcoholic options and stuff. And I, I, feel, I would feel like it's a bit easier now as opposed to maybe 10 years ago, but there's still a long way in terms of normalizing sobriety. Is there a way to do that without fully uh, 
not, I mean, because alcohol is bad straight up, but is there a way to normalize it without demonizing yeah, the alcohol? Yeah. Like, is there a balance there? Or I mean, not? I think we're getting there. And I, I very much, I mean, you say alcohol is bad. Like, I don't necessarily think alcohol is bad. I know I've just said it's addictive and it's all these things, but. Um, I, I don't demonize alcohol or people who drink. I think we just not we just have to have honest conversations about yeah. about what this substance is and what it does, and not pretend that it's doesn't wreak havoc in families and relationships and communities because it does. Um, but it's not it's not necessarily the substance itself that's bad. It's the way we've been taught to use it. Yeah, right. Um, and I think. The rise of the non-alc movement, which is just an extraordinary change in 10 years. You know, when I quit drinking in 2011, I walked into my local bar in Brunswick and I know the owners very well. And I asked for a lime and soda because back then that's kind of all you could get. And he said, what, well, why are you not drinking? And I said, I'm just going to give it a break for a while. And he said, why would you want to do that? And he was almost like personally offended by mm. it and I went and sat down with a friend at the front of the bar and five minutes later he came up with a shot of vodka and put it on the table in front of me and he said look this is a new vodka we've got and it goes really well with lime and soda just leaving it there as a test oh no it's a challenge he said and I was like why are you testing me why and I just thought Christ 20 years of binge drinking and all I needed to do to get free booze was to quit like this is absurd mm -hmm. and there, that was you know now that bar has many non-alcoholic options we've got non-alcoholic bars we've got non-alcoholic bottle shops and I think that doesn't shift a culture overnight but it gives people options yeah. you know and we're seeing that shift happening and in in the the updated version of higher sobriety that's kind of what I wanted to look at I wanted to look at what's changed for me in 10 years but also what's changed for the culture and and what's so fascinating is that this rise in the sober curious movement and the non-alc kind of industry is really being driven by young people which is a complete flip from where we were when I was writing about you know kids binge drinking and the government in 2008 put together a binge drinking strategy for youth because they were so concerned about alcohol-related violence and alcohol-related harm for young people and teenagers and, and um, people in their early 20s. And now those people are opting out in great numbers. Like the, the age at which people are having their first drink is getting older. Really? Yeah, it's gone, I think, from used to be like average age of like 14 and now it's up to like 17. Wow. Which is still still you know young but it's it's changed and the number of young people choosing to abstain completely has increased and the people who are having the greatest problems with drinking are not young people anymore it's people in my age people mm. who are in their particularly women and they're between their 40s and 60 who as we know take on a lot of the mental load and maybe doing a lot of caring duties parents Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Duties, 
holding down a job, trying to keep a house together, not they getting a lot need of that help. outlet, but yeah. they don't know any uh, anything else to be that outlet. That's right. And they and there's a very strong, insidious mummy wine culture that you see. Oh, my God, yeah. Can you tell me about the mummy juice? So mummy, <laughs> mummy I juice. hate that term yeah. so much. It makes me cringe. <laughs> so I, one of the chapters of the book I look at the way that women have been targeted by the industry Um, and I really recommend if anyone's interested in looking at sobriety and why we drink as women looking at um, a book called Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker which you might if anyone who's watched um, and uh, just what was the name of the new Sex in the City Um, oh and just like that just like that Miranda was given a book by uh, Charlotte oh as a kind of intervention it's that it's that book but it's really good and it looks at it looks at the way that drinking has been sold to women as a kind of panacea for all their woes, rather than actually fixing the structural problems that women face. Yeah. Hey, just have a wine. Yeah. And it's looking at it through a feminine feminist lens was really interesting to me. Obviously, I've read a lot of books about sobriety, but this one was one that looked at it particularly through a feminist mm. lens and it was really fascinating. And I know a lot of women who've read that book and have gone, I'm quitting after drinking. Yeah, fuck that. So like, <laughs> it's actually the, the patriarchy who are keeping me in this sort of – feeling of like oh the wine is what's gonna fix my problems not having not, not the gender pay gap <laughs> yeah. or you know getting more help at home exactly. or, or, or having like equal rights in the workplace so yeah so when I looked at the way that women have been targeted by the industry I looked all the way back to when you know my mum was um a young woman in Scotland and they used to have separate areas of the bar that women weren't allowed into. They had the ladies lounge and they had the bit that the men could, and the, and the bit that the men were in had, had frosted glass so that the woman folk couldn't look in and see what their men were doing wow. in there. Like it's just so gendered and we don't even realize how insidious no. that is. And, and you know that a culture has lost its way when this happened in America, there was a trademark infringement legal case between two alcohol companies over trademarking the name mommy juice <laughs> for mm. a brand of wine because one of them I think one of them one of them was calling it mommy's little helper and the other one like because yeah you know mommy's little helper this is so fucked <laughs> like wouldn't mommy's little helper be some like gender equality rather than a fucking glass of chardonnay okay, yeah. like but yeah so so they went to court and that to me and that was quite a while ago now that was when I wrote the first um first edition of the book and I think that that is really telling and we've see- so that's evolved and and the advertising around mommy juice and mommy's little helper was like you've had a rough day you deserve it you know kick off your shoes and relax once the kids are in bed with a nice glass of mommy juice it's like and do it all again tomorrow yeah yeah <laughs> and don't get any help from anyone in your life yeah. and just continue being a slave that's fine um <laughs> And so now we have seen that progress online to mommy wine culture on Instagram, Facebook, even TikTok. And you see these, I, I see it now. And I, it's like once the kind of uh, the fog is lifted from your eyes, you can't see it any differently. I used to laugh at that stuff. And I used to be someone who would post on Facebook about my hangovers and post things. I, I, somebody sent me a picture, um, a journal friend of mine sent me a picture that he'd taken of me at an event not that long ago, like 2018 when I was still drinking. And it's me at some, like the Melbourne Film Festival opening or something. And I'm holding this like giant magnum of champagne pretending to drink straight out <laughs> of the bottle. Like hilarious. <laughs> like, woo, I'm such a big drinker. Like now I'm just like, yeah, that's really problematic. But when you look at the memes and it's all the way that women will survive motherhood is to drink. And I just think that that 
is a trap that we've fallen into and it is part of a very gendered society that tells us that the answers to the problems we face are not structural and societal and political. They're self-care wine and bubble baths. Mm. You know, when there's a place for that, but it's not it's not the answer. Mm. And I think a lot of women will joke about how much they drink. And it's like, well, rather than joking about how you need to drink wine to survive motherhood, like could we could we point the lens at who the problem is? Which is and men. what really needs <laughs> like, to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I I'm always quite cautious talking about this because I'm not a mother and I and I don't want any anyone who is a mother who drinks wine to think I'm in any way attacking them yes. or criticizing them. I'm absolutely not. I'm saying that the culture has taught us that alcohol is the answer to all of our problems. Yes, and it's actually, not their fault. Yeah, and it's and I don't want there to be any shame that's placed on women, but I think it is part of that shame complex of it's really important to raise too. Because we don't get so, we don't get daddy wine culture, do no. you? Like there's no sort of like, oh, I need a beer to get through parenting because they're not as present. Like and they're not they they don't have the same societal expectations on them. So yeah, it's interesting. You think that you're just having a drink, but I really think that the, the drinking culture that we have in this country and other Western countries is very gendered mm. and is and is very layered and is it we don't realise the reasons that we drink yeah. a, a lot of the time. Tying it back to the workplace as well, when you think about all the industries who are deeply embedded in that drinking culture. As so I used to work at Flight Centre and Student Flights um, before I got into radio and I true like I, I loved the work, like it was very fun. It was definitely the most stressful job I've ever had. Um, but the one thing I struggled with was they used to do monthly buzz nights and it would be a night where your kind of region would all gather at a, a pub or a hotel, they'd book it and um, well, flight center, they'd give you, it, it was nice because they'd give you a meal, right? So at least <laughs> you'd have dinner, but student flights put all of the money towards a tab. So you'd get minimal food, maximum booze. And it would be on like a school night, like on a Tuesday night or whatever. You'd have to work the next day. Um, But it was a way of celebrating people who, you know, did good sales and catching up with everyone. But it was like compulsory to go. It was hugely Mm. frowned upon if you did not go. And I've always been a lightweight and I'm very well aware of that and not being able to hold my alcohol as well as others. And I've I've put myself out there a lot as just I'm a nana like and – I'm glad that I did that in yes, my 20s you, because you, people you manage people's expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's on brand yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah. But I still struggled with that within this particular setting. It's just so wild. And you would have the same as a journalist. And I even think of, I always think of that bar that all the pollies yeah. would go to with the journos and just, isn't it? It's kind of scary, it like is. how I much mean, we actually embed it into our work yeah, life. Absolutely. There, was, there used to be in the age newsroom a bar next to the toilet it's like a bar <laughs> in the newsroom like it, and you could drink at your desk you could smoke at your desk you could do all those things and I, I yeah it's, it's very entrenched in our in our identities whether it's national identity professional identities and I think again that's a a way of us saying I don't drink just because I'm drinking an addictive substance I drink because I'm a journalist or I drink because I work for flight center and it's you know that but I think if we see more workplaces 
I would hope that now you'd go to an event like that and there actually might be some options for you to drink. Yeah, I don't even think the buzz nights exist they're anymore probably, anyway. This is like legally not allowed to do them anymore. <laughs> yeah. like a, but that time 10 years ago, yeah. like it was fucked. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting though because I did a, I did do a, a story for The Age. I left The Age in 2016, but shortly before I left, I did a like a front page story about the rise of the – like people in my age group and, and beyond drinking more and people – your age group and younger drinking less and I spoke to an advertising executive who talked about exactly what you're saying like an after work kind of they used to always put on drinks at four o'clock on Friday in the boardroom in this uh, company and he said most of the young people would stay for one or not drink at all or just go to the gym straight after work and it'd be him and his old mates like drinking away and he's, he's just like oh am I the problem yeah. <laughs> maybe it's me <laughs> I mean that's not to say that every young person is is um sober of course not but there's definitely a shift and I think the reasons for that I've, I've explored a little bit in the book where I talk about I think one of the things is that young people are growing up in a very volatile society there's a lot of uncertainty there are there's a climate catastrophe happening. They're probably never going to own their own home. There's not a lot they can control. Exactly, right? but they and can control yeah. this, right? And also in an unstable job market, do you want pictures of yourself being wasted online because everything has a digital footprint these days? Um, but I think one of the other things that's driving it is, you know, back then, 10 years ago, I wrote about the, some research talking about social media's social contagion effect and you know, I'm constantly bombarded with memories from Facebook of like Well, we used to freaking and rinse the digital camera, upload the whole thing as yeah, an album on Facebook, album, right? Yeah, that was right. a sick yeah, night. Yeah. We don't, you don't do that on Instagram of like blurred or TikTok. Faces, yeah. yeah, and I'm all, my, my updates are, when I get these memories, it's, it's alarming how many times it's me boasting about how hungover I am yes. or how much I can't remember about the night before, which I just, I think that's shifted as well. I don't think people do that as much. And when you do see it, you're like, oh, that's a bit like awkward. Um, and so the research is now showing that that social contagion effect, because back then they said that people would see other people boasting about their big nights. So they would do the same. Now it's happening in reverse. So you have this trend of sober influencers on tiktok and instagram talking about this rich and fulfilling life that they and can productive have. days yeah and not, and not just like oh seize the day but actually you can have fun and still have friends and yeah. not be socially isolated because i think that was very like in 2011 when i wasn't drinking it was a very socially isolated place to be whereas now you know i, I have what most of my friends still drink but i do have a lot of sober friends as well that i've made um since then because there's lots of us out there mm. now and uh, you know you can't be what you can't see and now if you're someone in their early 20s not wanting to drink or wanting to change you can actually see people doing that and having a lifestyle that is um rewarding and fun and interesting and doesn't have to be just sitting at home on your own (laughs) yeah yeah speaking of how did you go with lockdowns in melbourne 2020 (laughs) 2021 particularly 2021 because we had the four I was living by myself in an apartment that year and I went through a breakup and actually decided to go, uh, yeah, I guess I, oh, did I go fully sober? I was like, I'm not drinking because I know it's going to make me feel shit and I just got to like tackle this heartbreak and everything that's coming with it, like just head on. I'm so glad that I did that. But um, how did you go with the lockdowns? Did you, because the first, the year before actually 2020 when I was living with that partner, I find myself drinking more in relationships, mm. which is interesting. Yeah, I hear that a lot because I, I think 
I don't, after I quit drinking the first time, having that break, I realized I didn't tend to, when I went back to drinking, I didn't tend to drink on, on my own and I live alone and I used to drink on my own quite a bit, but then I just didn't. But I think in relationships, yeah, it's sort of like a, it's like a end of the day, catch up, debrief on your day or whatever. But um, when the pandemic hit in March, 2020, um, I was only nine months into my second stint of sobriety at that time. And my parents are in Scotland, my brother and sister-in-law and nieces are in Singapore and the borders went down and it just like, I, I don't know if you remember those first few weeks, it was just chaotic and no one knew what was going to happen. And mm-hmm. people in Italy and China were dying in huge numbers. And I saw, I nearly got on a plane to go to Edinburgh and because I thought, what if I never see my parents again? And as it turned out, I didn't see them for more than two years because mm-hmm. the borders were shut. And I remember thinking, oh, I could just have a drink. Like, fuck it. If you can't have a drink in the apocalypse, like when can you have a drink? But I quickly realized that that, exactly as you've just said if I'm going to get through this I need this is this is an uncharted waters waters for all of us no one's ever done this before we don't know how we're going to get through this and I remembered the reasons I stopped drinking the second time in the first place which was largely for mental health reasons like I could no longer ignore the correlation between the huge dips in my mood and my big nights of drinking and I'm someone who has lived with anxiety and depression since I was a teenager so you know drinking when you have anxiety is like pouring petrol on a bonfire and watching (laughs) your life blow up around you you know so I thought I do not need to be drinking through this. Did you find it hard the first time though or were you not maybe aware of that link at the first time? I don't think the first time and that's another reason I wanted to re-release the book is so much I've learned in the last 10 years Mm. um because when I quit drinking the first time, it wasn't, it was kind of an experiment and I didn't plan to stop for a year. And it was sort of like, oh, I've got to write this book now. And, and I don't know if I would have stopped for a whole year had I not had that book deal. Um, and I knew, I, I touched on mental health a little bit in that, in that first edition of the book, but. We weren't talking about it like we do now. No, we weren't talking about it, but also I hadn't gone through, I had, I'd gone through quite a lot of mental health challenges over the years, but nothing like what happened in 2014, 2015. So when High Sobriety came out, to my great surprise, it was a bestseller. I mean, it was a dream come true for me to write a book. I'm flying around the world doing book like book signings and I, I had everything I'd ever wanted. Like I had great friends. I'd just bought my own apartment. Oh yeah, on paper I had it all. Like and and then my life just fell apart at the peak, which is often the case, right? Because we're taught in this society that once we have the dream job and the perfect partner and the breathable yoga pants and the fancy car, then we'll be f- complete and we'll feel happy and fulfilled. And that's a nonsense. And that's what I wrote my second book, Happy Never After, about, which is like this constant pursuit of happiness is actually driving us mad and yeah. making us feel inadequate. And, and for me, I realized during that, it was a very serious breakdown, which my psychologist later rebranded as a breakthrough because, Love. you know, <laughs> you often find out the most about yourself in these times of adversity. But I nearly didn't survive it. Like, it was bad. And, and I, I stopped drinking for quite a lot of time through that period just because I was so unwell. But when I came through the other side of that, I went back to drinking and then I just couldn't ignore anymore that if I want to have strong stable mental health alcohol does not help me with that it's a terrible therapist we think that will help us cope it doesn't it actually just takes our resilience yeah (laughs) exactly and I would say that you know we think that alcohol helps us cope but and we will have a drink to take the edge off but the next morning those edges are sharper and they cut you deeper 
So I realised that alcohol for me was not compatible with the life that I wanted um, and that was a question that my psychologist asked me and that was the moment I knew that I was going to quit drinking and potentially for a long time if not forever. When she asked me to consider the question, is alcohol getting you closer to the life you want or further away? Mm. And the, the answer was obvious to me. I'd learned that lesson when COVID hit. It was like, I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know how this is going to end. None of us knew. It was so uncertain. And I just thought there's no way I'm going to get through this if I'm drunk or hungover. And so I just made the decision to to keep going. And, um, and I haven't had a drink. So I think it's like June 2019 was when I last had a, had a drink. But To this day? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So this is the longest step yeah, for you. Yeah. Wow. So it'll be four years on, I think it's the 28th of June. Wow. Yeah. Love so, that for you. Because I, I always say it's not that first drink. It's play the tape forward. Where does that drink take me? Yes. And it's never been anywhere good for me, really. Like yeah. there's that, That's not to say there haven't been fun times, but laterally there was more occasions of regret and chaos <laughs> and I just thought no I'm not I'm not doing it I'm not I'm not going back to that way um but yeah it's it's an interesting journey because I think that there's some people in the sober space the sort of sober influencers who who like to talk about like you quit drinking and your life magically changes and everything's this, amazing and I have and you I, seen the smugness that or it can be perceived as how do, I don't remember how to talk about that because there's a yeah. Are there people who are actively being smug, do you think, in I that think space? I don't think it's as common. I think there's lots of us who are talking about, I hope, like I've tried from the very first time I quit drinking in 2011 to never preach, to never lecture, to never talk. I only talk about my own experience and what I know about facts and around the drinking culture. Um, and I'm never out here trying to convert anyone. As I said, most of my friends are still drinkers and there are a lot of journals who are big drinkers, you know. Um, I'm not. I don't have any judgment towards that or and we all go out together and there's no problem. I think there are there is a bit of smugness, but sometimes people who get defensive about smugness that doesn't exist, it's because they think that they're being judged because they don't really want to look at their own drinking. Yeah. But there is, a, a, I would say, a minority of people who paint sobriety as this utopian kind of rainbows and unicorns and your life just magically improves. And I always say that, you know, sobriety doesn't remove your problems. It illuminates them. It shines a flashlight on them. And you have to have the courage to look at that because maybe before you were just sort of reaching for a bottle of wine and numbing out and not looking at it. So it's not as if your problems go away. And I think it's not I'll, fixing it. No, it's, exposing, it's exposing it and giving, well, for me, it gave me the clarity and the calmness to do the work on myself. And I don't think I've ever been in a better place in my life. What, what I realized was that I was drinking for one of two reasons whenever I picked up a drink to ease pain or to increase pleasure. So, you know, you maybe you've had a stressful day or something really bad's happened. So you're trying to medicate with alcohol or you want to be joyful and blissful and get really drunk. When you learn to do both of those things, manage pain and increase pleasure without alcohol, like to me that is true liberation and that's where I think I am now. I think I have more moments of 
heart soaring joy. <laughs> like not every day, all day, because I'm not a freak, but you know, I'll have moments of joy when I'm just so in the moment mm. and I'm so connected to myself that I didn't get before. Um, so that's what I talk about. And and that but that is not to say that it's like that all the time. Mm. And it's not hard because it is, it's really challenging. And I think it's, I think it sets people up to fail to say, oh, if you just quit drinking, everything will be fine. No, it won't, but it may help you to cope with some tough things. And I think what you said, like that shows a great sense of self-awareness and insight for you to know like, okay, I'm living alone in lockdown. I've just gone through a breakup. Maybe now is not the time to drink like that. That's something that I think a lot of us learn the hard way, but it sounds like you had enough clarity to be able to say this is not the right decision for me at the moment Mm. but unfortunately we are pushed the idea that alcohol is um an anesthetic and during lockdown um the bottle shops and the alcohol industry aggressively pushed the idea that the way that to cope with this unprecedented global event was to buy more of their products yeah and they literally were sending out marketing that was saying you know confinement sale and you know stay home drink up that was some of the messages that they were and it was all being home delivered of course and and it worked it was very effective the sales of alcohol through that period went through the roof can imagine and that has resulted in two things I think one a lot of people emerged from covid and the the height of the covid crisis with drinking problems or drinking patterns that they perhaps didn't have before they started. Maybe they were drinking every second day or only at the weekends and then they're drinking every day. Mm-hmm. Maybe people who are drinking every day started to drink earlier in the day and that's that's borne out by the research. Um, and then another thing happened, I think, for a whole cohort of other people, it forced them to look at the way that they were drinking and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want a different way. And that's why I think we're seeing this huge like stratospheric rise in the non-alcoholic sector because if you have a life-altering event like a global pandemic, six lockdowns like we had here in Melbourne, which makes you reflect on everything and the way you're living your life and what really matters, you maybe come to the conclusion that being wasted and hungover all the time when you don't know what's around the corner and life is short is maybe not the best use of your time. So I know that a lot of people emerged from lockdowns with better drinking habits or more moderation or sobriety completely, which I think is really interesting Mm. um, that it kind of had that effect on people. So, and it's still, it's sort of kind of early to say, they always say after like a natural disaster or a major crisis, it can take several years for the sort of mental health and, um, problems to to filter through. I think we're seeing that now. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with with drinking patterns because I think it's changing. But you know, I, don't, I haven't seen the stats yet to say whether or not we are still on the same trajectory that we w- were on, which was to drink less. Mm. Do you think we will see drinking? in the same light as smoking at some point where like, I don't really, do you know, it's funny. I love the smell of secondhand smoke. Like, you know, how people usually apologize. Oh, sorry. Don't mind. I'm like, bro, you can, I will smell it, which mm-hmm. is probably a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think we'll get to that point where we kind of, I guess, see smoking, um, will alcohol like smoking in terms of how socially acceptable it is? Do you think it will have that kind of, it will I, th- fizzle I, th- out? I think it, I don't think or we'll think- ever not, 
be drinking. Yeah. Uh, I think alcohol will always be playing a part. I do think we'll start to see the associations with alcohol in certain pastimes as completely absurd. Like the fact that we used to be able to smoke at our desks in offices mm. or, or on public transport now it just seems insane. Maybe we're seeing people drink less but vaping with There's it. a lot of vaping happening. But yeah. I, I think we'll see things like there's no there's no um, tobacco advertising in sport, for example, because it's not conducive to like uh, having these athletes. You've got these bodies that are like machines, you know, finely tuned machines running around with tobacco adverts on them. Like there's still there is still heavily we're still heavily advertising alcohol with sport. I think that will change in time. Um, but at the end of the day, major sporting codes and both of the major political parties are heavily propped up by the alcohol industry until they start divesting their donations and not relying on these big companies who have such influence, I think that's that's why it will take longer to change. But really I, do, I do think that we'll probably see, like, being publicly drunk might start to become a bit on the nose. Although I should say, I think it's really interesting that here in Victoria they've changed public drunkenness laws because it was largely impacting on First Nations people who were ended up incarcerated or in some cases deaths in custody. Mm. And you contrast that with the way that, you know, white people go to the races and get drunk and don't get arrested <laughs> yeah, because it's culturally acceptable. When you unpack the way that alcohol intertwines in, with our culture, it's so interesting, it's so political, the way that drunkenness is perceived in certain through genders, race, classes. Like bottomless brunch is okay. Yeah. That's fine. Like we can all go with our girls, our girlfriends to a hen's night and get hammered and do ridiculous things while we're drunk. But, you know, an Aboriginal person on their own drunk on the street may end up dead in a police cell for being drunk. Like that's <laughs> – we don't think about those contrasts, do we? We just accept that the way that we drink is okay and the way that other people drink is not okay. So, yeah, anyway, not to get too political, but I, I think... But it's it, a fair point. It's a really fair point to raise because it's true and a lot of people are oblivious to it yeah. and out of privilege too and education. I think it just proves the point that it is such an important thing to kind of touch on because it really does open up all these kind of sub-conversations mm. too and sub-issues. What would you say, Jill, to going back to the top, telling you about my friend who came off this hens and was just like, I thought we moved past this peer pressure. What would you say to someone in that position, I guess, as someone who doesn't want to be drinking and also what you would say to the people who are still pressuring others? What, what, what can we say to them? I think it before you judge someone else for not drinking or try to pressure them into having a drink, maybe take a breath and ask yourself why you're doing that why does their sobriety make you uncomfortable why do you need them to drink why did why if you're having a drink but they're not what is the problem with that and I think when you start having those honest conversations with yourself you find yourself less likely to to pressure someone but if you're on the other side of that and being pressured I think I often say to people if you're really choosing not to drink whether it's for a night or forever telling the people around you what your why is is really important mm. I think 
Because if you say to someone, I'm choosing not to drink, as I did, because the anxiety for me is becoming debilitating and my mental health is suffering and for me the best decision to be the best version of myself is to not drink just now. If that person still chooses to pressure you after hearing that, they are not your friend and it's time to get different friends. And that's a hard thing to hear, but you might have to be more discerning about who you spend your time with. Because the first time I stopped drinking, I did lose friends because I realized many of them were just drinking buddies. Now the people that are in my life are people who, you know, would walk over hot coals for me and fully support my decisions and have never once tried to pressure me even though they still enjoy drinking. And anyone who doesn't fit into that and who's going to judge me for my decision to not drink, I don't really have a place for them. And that might sound really harsh, but I just think life's too short to surround yourself with people who don't fill you up and who are going to make you act against your own best interest. I'm pushing you away from being the best version of yeah. yourself. And, and, and me saying this is me being the best version of myself does not mean that if you drink, you're not the best version of you. It means that I have made this decision for me based on a number of factors, based on a lot of soul searching and a shit ton of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have to say, after, after therapy, sobriety has been the single most effective thing I've done for my mental health. Again, that's not something people really like to hear because people want to be able to keep drinking. But improves so many things it it helps you sleep better it removes that anxious feeling the morning after you've got more clarity you've got more time and energy to exercise and do the things you know to keep well um so that is for me personally it's been really really effective so I, th I think people who are pressuring you or judging you for your decision not to drink has everything to do with them and nothing to do with mm -hmm. you and it's really important to remember that because it can be hard and it can feel really personal and you can feel hurt by people's almost isolating you for this one thing in your life that you choose to do um but you have to see it as their issue not yours otherwise you drive yourself mad and you try to contort yourself into different ways to fit into people's perception of how you should be like you don't do that in other areas of your life. So don't drink just because someone else wants you to. Have a drink if, if that's the right decision for you. But being sober because you've made a decision based on saving money, mental health, whatever it might be, if you tell them why this is important to you and I'd really like you to support me in it and they still choose to be dickheads, <laughs> let them go. Mm. And you can still be fun sober anyway. I had a sleepover the other night and girls come over here. We got fire pit. Um, a couple of them went mocktails. A few of us tried a few cocktails, but it was so wholesome. And I think that's, we're often led to believe that the sober life is, is half a life. But for me, it's been really fulfilling. Mm. And I always say that the, if the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings, <laughs> the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings. Yeah. So you you start to feel connected to like my friendships have deepened so much more um, since I quit drinking. I'm more honest with the people in my life. I'm more open and more loving, I think, with them. I'm more present. I don't miss anything because um, it's hazy and blurred and I don't remember things. I'm more I'm in the moment. And yes, I feel all the other feelings too, the tough ones, but I'm so much more equipped to deal with them. So yeah, like 
And feeling those feelings can help enhance the good feelings Absolutely. too. Because you don't really know the true joy of those feelings. It's a unless contrast. Unless you've yeah, yeah, experienced yeah, the real right. lows. And, and I think people are often scared to feel their feelings on either side of that coin. So drinking is a good way to sort of not have to. But for me, it's been a complete journey of discovery of, of self. You know, that's something that has been a, a real surprise to me I didn't think that I would end up with this like knowing of myself in a way and yeah one of my friends said to me recently that in all the years she's known me she's never seen me with such a strong sense of self wow and that really moved me and I felt it I felt like yeah I know who I am I know what I stand for what I won't stand for I know um what brings me joy and what doesn't and what I need to live a, a, a full and rewarding life and I just didn't have that before and that's not just because of sobriety but it's massively helped Mm. man solid chat we've like (laughs) ticked over an hour we got real deep there but I've taken so much out of this conversation and your book as well and I think it's such an important one to have and you know even though we have witnessed a lot of I guess progress and change within that landscape there's still obviously a lot more that can be done but I think having these conversations and the work that you're doing is so important. So thanks for sharing it. And I'm so proud of you for not having a drink during lockdown, man. Like, that's fucking sick. <laughs> I wish that was me. <laughs> but thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been lovely. Yay. Oh, my God. Solid chat. If you want to hear more from Jill, I'll pop her Instagram in the show notes of this episode. She's got some really great stories saved in highlights on sobriety, everything from her own experience to some non-alcoholic drink recommendations, which is something I've been asked for. And I've also got a link to her books, which you can check out too. I really hope that chat was just as valuable to you as it was for me. And if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please, pretty please rate it and review it. It really does help me continue this project, which is fully independent. And yeah, sharing it with anyone that you think may like it means the world. I'd very much appreciate it. (laughs) I'm Bridget Husway. Figuring Out 30 is created on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'll be back with you next week. See ya. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.